This podcast is about the unexplained death of a young woman, Laura Van Wye. I have reviewed and I will report on the contents of official case files provided by the police department that's investigating her possible homicide, including witness interviews and police reports. You will hear me provide my own opinions about these materials in the hopes of shedding new light on this cold case. It's important to stress, no person has ever been charged or convicted of killing Laura, and everybody identified in this podcast is innocent until proven otherwise. Previously on Bonaparte. In the early evening hours, there was a party of the family that Laura had a child in common with. And uh, in Bonaparte in our county, four hours later, five hours later, she's dead. And we're just trying to fill in the parts in between. You know, my view on it was like, she got hit by a truck walking that didn't have his brights on or something. I got a call from my friend Jacob, who was a mutual friend of Laura's and mine. I said, you know, Leanne, I have resources now. I'm a, like, I'm a real lawyer. You know, maybe I can help get this going. I first met Laura, um, I think I was probably starting 10th grade and she was starting 9th grade. That's Annie's friend Jacob, whose phone call to Annie was the call that started her quest to solve Laura's death. I think it was September. It was right around the beginning of the school year. Beautiful day. It was a great time to be in Iowa. I think the, the corn had been harvested, but, you know, the weather was still warm. And her sister, Sarah, had just gotten a car. It was an absolute junker. So we went out on just on a little day trip, like sort of fooling around, sort of like in Gilligan's Island kind of way. It was supposed to be a three-hour tour. But we ended up, I believe, having three separate flat tires <laughs> over, the, over the course of this short trip. Um, which necessitated things like, you know, uh, having a farmer jack the car up, you know, pumping up the tire. And then eventually, I think, um, you know, we were all several hours late for whatever we were supposed to be doing with our parents. But over the course of that day, sitting in the back seat with Laura, I think I began to feel what was probably the first time I'd ever fallen in love with anybody. She was just so unlike anything I'd ever met um, or anybody. From the very moment I first met her, I could tell she was like one of these people who wasn't sort of like subject to the same laws of physics that like everybody else was, you know? She was like her own solar system. At some point, uh, began holding hands and she fell asleep with her head on my shoulder. I'll never forget that. Um, it was really the first time I had fallen in love. She was such a strong personality and so, so smart. You know, I think I sort of found it to be intimidating um, to be with her, both because of just like how strong she was, but also because of like how strong my feelings were for her. It was a little too much for, you know, 16-year-old Jake. Um, but we remained friends uh, for years after that, you know, um, running in different circles, but our worlds collided regularly. And um, 
you know, every time she, she was one of these people, like every time she came into your life, it was memorable. From Imperative Entertainment and Vespucci, I'm Jason Stavers. This is Bonaparte. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. After Laura died, after the funeral and the fight over her son Samson, those close to her largely moved on and into the rest of their lives. Laura was someone they'd lost, someone whose life and personality would live only in memory. Yet for many of them, Laura's death is also an inflection point. It's a moment that marks a clear before and after. For Laura's mother, Leanne, and for her son Samson, it leads to a new life in California, living as mother and child. For Donnie, it means an embittering legal battle with Leanne, and then the disappearance of Samson from his life. And for Donnie, as for Tony and Sarah Bergman, and for everyone who was at the party in Bonaparte that night, it means a quarter century of rumors and suspicion. Looking back on this period with 25 years of perspective, Annie sees Laura's death as pivotal for her as well. After staying in Iowa City for several months to mourn Laura and to help Laura's family, Annie moves to New York City. Perhaps she would have always ended up here, but the timing and the tone of her move has everything to do with Laura. And Annie isn't alone. There's something of an Iowa City diaspora in New York, and life after Laura's death takes on a new weight. The stakes are higher. Annie loses friends to arguments that once would have been forgotten the next day. She witnesses casual drug use slip into addiction. People take jobs to pay rent, only to find themselves in careers that define their lives. Annie travels a winding course through this new terrain. She works for an environmental consultant, then at the Audubon Society, a job she loves. She goes to grad school in literature, where she teaches ESL and writes a thesis on Borges and Dante. Then, like a marble dropping into the hole at the end of the maze, she steps into law school and the rest of her life. Annie told me that in the years since, during the late nights and the marathon conference calls, the trials by fire in which she forged the tools of her profession, she thought about Laura often, thought about her as she lived, not how she died. Annie sees her job as being a problem solver, but Laura was a memory, not a case, not a problem to be solved. I knew Annie for 10 years before she told me Laura's story. I doubt she ever would have, but for that phone call from Jake and the conversation with John Zane. Because that was the contact point, the moment when the memory of Laura arced across time and formed a circuit with Annie the professional, the Annie I knew. I thought I'm uniquely positioned here to actually do something about this wrong and help 
write the parts of it that can be righted, you know, at this stage of history. Because I am close enough with her family that I have their trust. And I have the tools of a lawyer. I have a law firm. You know, I didn't really know what exactly I could do about it, but I knew I could do something. You know, I had seen enough by that point in my legal career, enough enough miracles of fact-finding, enough, you know, miracles of the powers of shining a spotlight on something that I knew I could do something. I knew I could shake something loose. I didn't really realize what I was getting into. So Annie tries to shine a spotlight on something for the better part of two years. It's a slow process. She works her way through the police file provided by Leanne and formally opens up a pro bono matter at her job so she can represent Leanne and bring her firm's resources to bear. She tries bringing in the FBI. She hires a private investigator to track down possible witnesses. All of this in addition to a demanding job and the obligations of parenting two children. And of course, the pandemic slows everything. Then she gets her first break. She pries the complete file from the police and learns about the blood DNA evidence they have. She and Leanne convince Missouri to bring in Parabon and its cutting-edge genetic genealogy analysis. In the late summer of 2021, Annie takes her quest public. She announces a $10,000 reward and courts media interest. Things accelerate. When we launched the Facebook page and then the Des Moines Register article came out, the majority of the people that I was hearing from were people close to Laura. So it was people not necessarily who had any relevant information, but were reaching out to say, oh, I'm glad you're doing this. Not all the attention is welcome. There are profane voicemails. Her team has to scrub unfounded allegations and gossip from the Facebook comments. Then, when this podcast launches, Annie is wary. She's used to seeing her name in print, but hearing your own voice is another thing entirely. And the podcast will involve much more personal exposure than a news story. It took me, someone had to force me to listen to it. Did you not know that? No, someone had to sit me down and play it. Fortunately, enough people are listening voluntarily that we're starting to see an impact. I've just been amazed at the reach that the podcast has had. I'm amazed at the attention it's brought to the case. I think actually the podcast has made me more optimistic that we can solve it. Once it's out there in the world, the world is talking about it. So the people surrounding it almost have to talk about it. Even with the reward, you don't necessarily have that, right? But it's like the press that gets people talking. And once the world is talking about something, then the people who are who touch it in some way almost have to talk about it. At this point, I've heard from a lot of people who know people who saw Laura that night, people who were at the party, people who know the Bergmans. I've heard a lot from a lot of people in the Bonaparte and Cahokia areas, and that really was not true a few months ago. The response to the podcast has also changed how Annie thinks about the investigation. At the outset, both of us, I think, were imagining a distinct breakthrough moment. It's not going to be one person who comes forward and says, I know the whole story. This is what happened that night. It's probably going to be little bits of information that get put together and make a better version of the puzzle that we already have that's going to break this case if it's not some random piece of DNA that we don't know about yet. It just seems like someone has not put two and two together on something they saw that night. Or maybe 
they hesitated to go to the police 25 years ago because they thought whatever they had to say wasn't consequential. And it may be that it's very consequential, you know, so I hope people are hearing about it and come forward. As the leads come in, Annie follows up on them and passes any with promise to law enforcement. Some are certainly fake or incorrect, people passing on rumors or trying to start them. Many aren't so much leads as background information, context. Individually, these tips might not crack the case, but as a body of material, it's all useful. You learn about the relationships between the people. You learn about, you know, people who may know something that you've never heard of before. Annie can't talk about all of the leads she's received. Law enforcement asks for time to investigate some, and others are too hard to evaluate until she can find out more information. Some of the tips are provided in confidence. But where she can, she shares a few with me. Remember the woman who said she was in a car traveling on Route 136 just before the truck driver found Laura? It turns out that that woman was in a car with three friends, and they all saw something. We know this because one of them contacted Annie. The car full of women who thought they saw a dog and then later thought, oh my God, that was the woman crawling. Only two of the women in the car that night are still alive today, but both of them are convinced they saw Laura and not a dog. If that's the case, it strongly suggests Laura had a confrontation nearby, either in the cornfield or somewhere else close to the road, a confrontation that causes her head injury. Perhaps her assailant takes Samson from her, tosses her bag aside, and leaves, not realizing how injured Laura is, or not caring. Laura is left disoriented, unable to stand. And she was crawling across the road trying to get help, and then she fell, passed out, whatever, right? And the woman told Annie something else, something completely new to us. She and her friends were on Route 136 because they were all heading home from a night out at the bar called The Bucking Bull. You might remember The Bucking Bull from episode two. It's where John Land had the fight and then went home and stabbed himself in the leg or whatever. But the woman told Annie there is more going on at the Bucking Bull than just Land's confrontation with the owner over unpaid advertising fees. I did hear that there had been male strippers at the Bucking Bull that night. And so the person who told me that said there would have been quite a bit of traffic around the time that Laura was found. This undermines the theory that Laura was injured somewhere else and then dumped by the side of the road to make it look like a hit and run. The fact that the person said there would have been a lot of traffic made me think the idea that she's somehow pulled out of a trunk and just plopped there is maybe not, you know, maybe not super credible. Annie has also made contact with an important witness that we heard about in episode seven, a friend of the Knight family who was at the party and who figures in Donnie's alibi. Now, this is one of the many Sarahs in this series, not Laura's sister Sarah or Sarah Bergman, but a friend of Donnie's younger brother. Donnie tells the police that this Sarah was at the house in Bonaparte until 2 a.m. She's the only person who can vouch for Donnie's whereabouts that night who isn't a close family member. But according to the police report of her interview, she claimed to have left the party at 11 p.m., if that's true, it weakens Donnie's alibi and suggests that he may have lied to the police. I didn't think that reaching out to her on Facebook would work, but she responded, and I'm supposed to call her today. And as you also know, there's a discrepancy between the time she said she left the party and when Donnie said that she left the party. 
This Sarah was also a witness to the earlier events at the party, and Annie is interested in hearing a firsthand report. She told the police that she saw Laura leave the party with the Bergmans. So I think that's a very important detail to confirm, including other details about that. Were they all in the van? Did she see them put anything into the car, Laura's bags, etc.? So Annie calls her, but Sarah doesn't answer. A few minutes later, she texts Annie. She's not sure she wants to talk. Annie says she'll try again in a few days. Another compelling tip comes in at the end of November. Annie hears from a source who relates the following. A friend of the source, who knows all of the characters in this story, was speaking with one of these people recently. And this person admitted that they or another person, quote, hit Laura. The details and the context are unclear, but any source believes that the admission was potentially relevant to Laura's death. So far, this is unsubstantiated, secondhand hearsay, thin enough that we're withholding the names of the people involved. But it's worth investigating, as are the other leads that have come in. The story about the woman who says she saw Laura crawling on the road. The possibility of learning more about the Bonaparte party. Annie decides it's time to pursue these opportunities. And she's worried that time may be running out. Hey, Jason, I'm going to go to Iowa the first week of December, and I'm going to go down and try to talk to Tony. I've just heard from a lot of people in his circle that he's really not doing well. I've heard that his liver transplant may be failing, and I'm literally worried that something is going to happen to him before we can resolve this case. So I'm going to go talk to him. I will take someone with me, but I just wanted to let you know. Annie is also increasing the reward. Shortly after it went live, people began contacting her, offering to help. Annie doesn't want to take people's money if she doesn't know it's going to be used. So she decides to accept pledges, which will only get collected if the reward is awarded. This relies on trust. There's nothing else securing these pledges. But it's a way to keep the story alive and generate more interest. Still, though, there's only so much Annie can do. It's the police that have to take action. Annie is passing these tips on to them, and in her view, the response has been tepid. It's a long-standing frustration. I feel like they're hesitant to go out and pound the pavement and re-interview witnesses or interview new witnesses. I think that they are waiting for resolution on certain leads with the physical evidence. I know that there is ongoing analysis of DNA going on, and I feel that they are hesitant to go out and do, I guess, what you would call like human intelligence. The prosecutor in Cahoka, with responsibility for the investigation, is telling Annie that she wants to begin with a thorough reanalysis of the physical evidence before going back to the witnesses. She told me that she had them reanalyze all of the physical evidence. She hasn't told me what tests they're running, what they're looking for. I don't know anything about that, but I know that there are new tests that they can do now that they couldn't do even 10 years ago. So. Maybe they're running some of that stuff. I just don't know. Re-examining existing evidence is clearly a crucial step. But with the podcast and the reward stirring up interest, Annie doesn't see why the police can't follow up on new leads now while the forensic work is underway. Annie has run hot and cold regarding the police investigation. Some days, she praises their work. Other days, she's bitter, sure that better police work would have solved the case 25 years ago. Lately, She's been critical. What's been going through my mind over the past few weeks is these police did not talk to enough people, you know? They needed to talk to everyone who knew the Bergmans. 
They certainly needed to talk to Tony's parents who lived right next door. I mean, they didn't talk to any of those people. And I, I just can't get over the fact that I now have a better picture of Laura's last 24 hours than they ever did. I, I just don't, you know, I don't get it. What I, I don't get it. I don't get it. Yeah, it seems to me that when people are talking about something and something's in the media, it's much more top of mind and people are kind of like, people have an urge to talk. And as, if they wait three months, I mean, the podcast will be done in, in a few weeks and it'll fade. And then people will be much quicker, I think, just to say, I don't have anything to say to you. Get out. Yeah, get off my ex phone. exactly. Maybe her view is that they have one shot again with each of these witnesses and she wants to, the police to be as well informed as they can be before they take that shot. Again, I kind of don't see it that way. Not, I mean, that's not what you hear from JD or Jim. Yeah, exactly. Why can't you just keep talking to them? It's the familiar rhythm of this investigation. A stir of activity generates some optimism, then things slow and stall. That's been the case with Annie's outreach to the medical examiner. With just the autopsy report to work with, he can't tell us anything new. I asked him a bunch of questions that he couldn't really answer. He couldn't tell me anything about the timing of the injuries relative to each other. While the police are re-examining the physical evidence themselves, they tell Annie they can't let a third party have access to it. And the prosecutor has been reluctant to provide the autopsy photographs. She said she would give them to me, but then she's been like, they're really gory. I don't know if you want to see these. And I'm like, I'm not going to look at them. I want to give them to a medical examiner. What we're hoping to learn from this physical evidence is not just what injuries were sustained, but crucially, what those injuries imply about events. So I think it would be helpful to talk to someone who knows more about accident reconstruction as opposed to sort of injuries, right? And then there's the potential ace in the hole, Parabon. Late last year, the police gave Parabon a sample of blood found on Laura's T-shirt. All they knew was that it was from a man and that it didn't match the DNA of any of the men known to have had contact with Laura that night. Parabon is trying to use information in publicly available DNA databases to build a family tree that can identify whose blood was on Laura's shirt. As of December, Law enforcement is still telling Annie that they don't have an answer back. We don't know what's taking so long, but we know the process is labor-intensive and difficult. When I spoke with C.C. Moore, the genetic genealogist at Parabon, she explained how murky the process of building a family tree can be. We all have genealogical brick walls. We all have places in our family tree where we can't get any further. We can't find the parents of someone. So we end up having to help solve a lot of unknown parentage cases and family mysteries in order to be able to then solve our law enforcement case. Cece got started with genetic genealogy, helping adoptees track down their birth parents and became a central figure in the small community of people who do that work. Even before she worked her first cold case, she'd puzzled over thousands of family trees. She's seen every imaginable family quirk and complication but she never knows what a new case will bring. In 2012, she discovered her own brother-in-law was a direct descendant of Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings. You have to be really creative, piecing these families back together, going both backwards and forwards, saying, who are the ancestors of these people? And then who are the descendants of those ancestors? And we only have access to public records, you know, marriage announcements, engagement announcements, um, 
birth announcements. The more Annie learns from people in the community, the more she sees how this is an area that could be challenging for Cece. It seems like there's quite a few folks who are maybe not blood relatives of the families that they grew up in, you know, half-brothers, half-sisters, adopted kids. It's just, you know, I can see how that would really slow things down. Because how do you trace siblings who don't even know they're related? So on Parabon, the waiting game continues. Perhaps Annie just needs to be patient. It's been 25 years, and law enforcement has more urgent cases. So what's another few months? But time is not on Annie's side. Memories fade, evidence dissipates, and Laura's case has already dragged on for far too long. Annie was angry when she first read Laura's police file, and that anger is still there. Why wasn't more done here, you know? Why didn't Laura deserve to have this case solved? Um, She did deserve that. And that's still really an upsetting thing about it. So it might not be solvable. And whether that's because of mistakes that were made in the past or mistakes that are made now, I don't know the answer to that, obviously. But she deserved better. When I spoke with people who knew Laura, I asked them to tell me about their last memory of her, the last time they saw Laura. Her friend Liz grew up on a farm and still treasures how Laura could always see the wonder in nature, like she was seeing it for the first time. A few months before she died, Laura came for a visit. At the farm with, with Sam, and you know, I think we got, to, we got the pony out, and he rode the pony or tried to ride. You know, little, little kids don't ride, but you lead them around and you hold them on there. And, some parents are, oh my God, don't do this, don't do that. And she was, you know, he'd bounce around and he'd giggle and she just thought that was the best. Um, it was, you know, beautiful sunny day, good fall time, you know. A few weeks later, Liz had another chance to see Laura, but didn't take it. I had been home for the weekend and Laura had had her birthday and she'd had a party and I didn't go. And I don't know, I had something else going on. Later that week, Liz was back at her college dorm and got a phone call telling her that Laura had died. I remember then learning and thinking like, you know, that when you don't go, you don't know that it might be the last time you have to see someone. And I've tried harder to, at least if I get invited someplace to be, hey, I can't come, I'd really like to be there or to go you know, to make myself go, even if it's just for a little bit. And in a weird way, it was kind of like her last lesson, her last reminder to embrace what you can in life and not forget. Go, you know, that whole kind of cheesy carpe diem, suck the marrow out of life kind of thing. You know, you don't know what's going to, that's why I keep saying, you don't know what's going to happen. And if there's an opportunity, you should take it. Before Annie goes to Iowa to investigate the leads that have come in over the past few weeks, we sit down for an interview. With no certain resolution in sight, I ask her, has all this been worth it? Is she glad that she took this opportunity? I think it has been very gratifying to have heard from so many people that knew Laura and loved Laura 
thanking me for doing this. They don't need to thank me. You know, I didn't set out to do this so that people would thank me. But at the same time, I did deeply feel that this would help a lot of people. So to actually hear that that's true is very gratifying. So I guess if you're going to pour your time and money into something that may be a lost cause, you know, you have to obviously be willing for it to be a lost cause. But even if this is a lost cause, even if this case cannot be solved and is never solved, I do feel like it has helped a lot of people. So I feel really grateful for that. I'm very glad to be able to use my professional skills um, and my contacts and my resources to, you know, to bring them some measure of comfort that at least everything that could have been done was done. I'm sure it's been painful for some people who are not implicated in any way here. And I'm, I'm sorry for that. But at the same time, I think it's been very healthy for the community around Laura to have this dialogue. I mean, I know I feel closer to people that I haven't talked to in a, in a couple of decades. In many cases, not directly because of this, although in some cases directly because of this, um, but because of the rifts in the community that this caused, you know? So I think it's been very healthy. And that's also what I've heard from a lot of people, you know, people that I have not talked to in decades. Maybe I know them from high school or I know them because they were in the same social circle as me at, at the time that this happened. I think it's been very healthy overall for people. For me, it's been such an ever-present thing in my life. You I know, play Annie some of the tape from my interview with Samson. As you heard in the last episode, he claims to have no doubts about what happened. His mother was hit by a truck, a tragic accident, one that has closed off and in the past. Whether that's ultimately true, his assessment is based on an incomplete and inaccurate version of events. But so what? What is the value of accuracy when inaccuracy buys you peace? I also don't blame him for wanting, not wanting to dig into them f- for himself. I mean, what, where does that get him? This is, it's not his job to solve this case. You know, I, I don't blame him for taking the view that he wants to have a healthy relationship with his dad. I think he does have a healthy relationship with his dad. I'm very happy about that. So then why do we need to dig into this? What's the practical value of the truth in a situation where people have made their accommodations, they've found a truth that works for them. Honestly, I think for Sam, too. I mean, I think that the discussion about this would have been and hopefully still can be really helpful to him. I know from talking with people around Donnie that this has, you know, forced Donnie to talk about this more and confront this more. And I'm sure that's been really emotional and hard for him. But I also think maybe that's, at the end of the day, healthier, right? Like, why is this such a big secret? Why is it so hidden, you know? Why is it so hard to talk about? So I think, you know, I'm hopeful that just people being more open about it and being like, hey, your mom was a cool lady. You know, he didn't know her. I totally get that. But it doesn't have to be this big taboo, you know, to talk about her. As we talk, though, Annie circles around to what drives her, and she rejects the notion that peace can be made based on an artificial resolution, on a manufactured truth. I want the truth. I'm not interested in anything but the truth. I'm not interested in revenge. I don't care about that. 
I want to know what happened. And I think that the truth has healing properties, even if it's uncomfortable. This reality is uncomfortable. This reality is really uncomfortable. There is a cloud of suspicion hanging over Donnie, a cloud of suspicion hanging over the Bergmans. If they had nothing to do with this, that's been really damn uncomfortable for them, right? We can't be afraid of the truth because the truth upsets people. The truth is there. The truth is shaping all these people's lives, whether they want to admit it or not. So God, you know, if it was an accident or it was a drifter, we need to know that. You know, how is that not a better result, knowing what the truth is? And if it was Donnie, and honestly, I don't think it was, but if it was him, then maybe some things will fall into place and make more sense for everybody, you know? I mean, I just think the truth has a sticking power that other that the stories we tell ourselves don't have. And if those stories are constantly shifting because you don't know what the truth is, are they really providing you with comfort? I mean, I, you know, I don't really think so. I want them to charge somebody with murder. That's Leanne, Laura's mother. I just think it's going to be this overwhelming happiness that we finally have the right person. But it's going to be for Sam... Even though it might be a shock, I, I still think he needs to know. It's very important to me. Now it's just the waiting again. The search for truth in any form is difficult. I think about Jim sorting his hard facts and his soft facts, lining them up against the possible theories. Cece digging through faded newspapers for century-old birth announcements. John Zane pulling the file one last time flipping through phone numbers, calling to see if anyone has a new detail or an old fact they've newly remembered. I think about Tony Bergman, haunted by something, real or imaginary, calling the police for a kind of exorcism. I think about Samson, flying to Iowa to meet his father for the first time in memory, and what they do and don't talk about. I think about the months I've spent tracking down people who knew Laura, people who worked on her case, and the hours I've spent listening to their stories, listening for a moment where a 25-year-old truth might emerge to get captured by my tape recorder. Whether by fate or by accident, Annie has found herself, or placed herself, at the center of the search for one seemingly simple truth. What happened to Laura Van Wye? It's been a long journey, and one which isn't over yet. As we were putting this episode together, Annie was headed out again to Iowa to chase down a new lead. She left me a voicemail on her way back. Hey, Jason. I'm at O'Hare. I did drive to the address that I had for the person that I wanted to talk to in a very, very, very small town in Iowa. Really, uh, you know, the kind of town that's like a feed store and a grocery store. I mean, it was the middle of nowhere. Uh... Anyway, it just underscores the fact that I really need somebody here in this area to help me do this stuff. I also really need somebody here that will go places with me because, it, honestly, it's not safe. And everybody keeps telling me that, but I don't have anybody to go with. So, anyway, I'm going to work on that. I have some ideas. Talk to you soon. Bye. So, this trip didn't end up yielding any fruit. But that's not to say the next one won't. 
So Annie is left standing outside an empty house in rural Iowa, searching for truth. But as bleak as that image might be, I don't look at it that way, because at least she's there. A cop, a therapist, or a priest will all tell you the same thing. There's only one way to truth. Do the work. For now, that's where we'll have to leave Annie, and Leanne, and Donnie, and Samson, each living in various forms of accommodation with the mystery at the center of their lives. Annie tells me she's more optimistic about solving the case now than she has been throughout the process. We're still waiting on Parabon, waiting for the results of Missouri's review of the physical evidence, and tips continue to come in. When there are substantial new developments, we hope to bring you more episodes that cover them. We hope, eventually, to bring you an episode reporting on the final conclusion, an answer to the question, what happened to Laura Van Wy? For now, though, that question remains unanswered. If you have information that can help us solve this mystery, please come forward. The website is championforlaura.com. But until we have more to report, this is our last episode. Thank you for joining us on this journey. I wanted to find a way to give Laura the last word, and I think this does it. It's from my interview with her friend, Laura Barron. Both Sarah and Laura were sailors because their dad taught them, and my dad had a boat on Lake Superior. And so we'd go out when we were um, in our late teens, we'd take the boat out, like me and Sarah and Laura, and like we were going that same route from Thunder Bay to Outer Island. And it was 12 foot seas the whole way, upwind. I'd thrown up so many times, I had nothing left to throw up. And it's like an 18 hour crossing. I was sick, our other friend who was there was sick, and Laura wasn't sick. My dad's so concerned, and it's these big seas, he's concerned about me, you know, and all of that. And Laura's like, looked at my dad and like, I mean, I'm sorry those guys are sick, but this is fucking awesome. <laughs> Bonaparte is a production of Imperative Entertainment and Vespucci and is written and hosted by me, Jason Stavers. For Imperative Entertainment, the executive producers are Jason Hoke and Andrew Richards. For Vespucci, the executive producers are Daniel Turkin and Johnny Galvin, with story guidance from Matt Willis and Pete Sale. The series producer is Thomas Curry. The executive producer is Emma Weatherill. Original music by Thomas Ross Fitzsimmons. Audio mix and sound design by Peregrine Andrews at Moving Air. Visit the Champion for Laura Van Wy Facebook page or championforlaura.com for more information about how you can help. If you like the show, please make sure to leave a review and don't forget to tell your friends. Thanks for listening. 
The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.